0: Welcome to the first episode of Better Off Red. We are thrilled that we're recording this the day after the March for Our Lives protests of millions of people around the country against gun violence. There's so much to talk about that and it really coincides nicely with the fact that our first interview is gonna be with Kianga Yamada-Taylor, the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And we had a bunch to say uh, with Kianga about these marches even though we recorded it actually the day before the March 14th student walkout. But before we get to that, my co-host Jen Rush and I are gonna be talking about our impressions Of the march yesterday and the bevy of exciting questions and challenges that it throws up so we'll be right back
1: for decades
2: my community of south los angeles has become accustomed to this violence it is normal to see candles it is normal to see posters it is normal to see balloons. It is normal to see flowers honoring the lives of black and brown youth that have lost their lives to a bullet. How can we cope with it when our school district has its own police department? Instead of making black and brown students feel safe, they continue to profile and criminalize us. So that mind-blowing speech you just heard was Edna Chavez, an organizer from South Central L.A., who actually lost her brother, Ricardo, to gun violence. And in this interview that we have later with Kianga, you're going to hear her talking about how struggle changes everything. And I think if there's one thing we got from the protest yesterday is a very visceral understanding about the way the debate around gun control is changing in this country because of the role of the young students, not just in Parkland, but all across the country who've been taking action. I thought we'd start with Danny, uh, with your reflections.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean, going back, you know, a week and a half to those student walkouts on March 14th, I thought there was a fascinating story about the Parkland one, um, where, you know, all 3,000 students and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas walked out of their school and they go on the football field and it's like a the ceremony is supposed to be for 17 minutes and then they go back to school and suddenly hundreds or thousands of middle school kids from some another school in Parkland had broken out of their school's protest you know what i mean led by a couple of students taken the streets marched to the football field and then got a section of the of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas students to leave their rally and march to a near, nearby park and there was something like that's about you know, spatially breaking out of the boundaries of where these protests were supposed to be, but it was so symbolic to me about the way that these protests are also breaking out politically. Of right, where the gun control or gun, your for guns or against guns debate has been, like these students, you know, getting solidarity from mainly black students in Chicago, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Baltimore, right, who are both standing in solidarity with Parkland but saying but demanding that they stories of gun violence and their issues of police violence and criminalization be heard. And it's just transformed, It's right, it shows how when people actually start taking action, particularly young people who are not yet thinking about how am I gonna translate this action into a career or facing those kind of pressures yet, but are just trying to like get to the root of what is the oppression that they're facing and are eager to make those connections, it has a transformative effect on on the conversation. Yeah. And I just thought you saw that in so many of the speeches, particularly in DC. I haven't really heard yet about, you know, in the cities across the country.
2: One of the speeches yesterday that's getting a lot of attention is the extraordinary speech of 11 year old Naomi Wadler, who organized a walkout in her fifth grade elementary school. And she they walked out for 17 minutes for the victims at Parkland, but she added an 18. She added an 18th minute for Cortland Arrington, um, who was a young Black woman who had also been a victim of violence since um, the shooting in Parkland, which just sort of speaks to, I guess, the intersectionality of this moment. Um, and her talking about, "I am here to represent mm. the young African American girls who don't make the headlines every day," and to see people like her or Edna Chavez, who you heard the clip from, or Trayvon Bosley from Chicago talking about you know laying the blame at the feet of Mayor Rahm Emanuel or Governor Bruce Rauner and saying that when you fund sports stadiums and don't fund schools, that's when you get gun violence. When you don't have counselors, that's when you have gun violence. Actually starting to talk not just about guns, but about what some of the root causes of this violence are.
0: To me. And by the way, so we played, you know, that clip of Edna Chavez. If you haven't heard her whole speech, you should go back and look it up. And I really recommend listening to Trayvon Bosley's speech as well you probably have already heard Naomi Wadler's. if you haven't you should do that too but that's just the one that's that's made the rounds but right it, it's um what's striking about these protests is that they're combining the urgency that has always been there in protests around gun violence you know like we can't let this happen again which is completely heartfelt and right but in the past i feel like in when the when this movement had been the the framework had been led by you know the politics of Every Town for Gun Safety, which is an interesting group. It combines survivors and mothers against, uh, uh, you know, mothers who want gun control with mayors for gun control. The group started by Michael Bloomberg, and that's the folks that fund it, right? So it's always had a mixture of survivors talking about the urgency, but then the demands and the politics being this very narrowly prescribed, you know, uh, stuff that's just about the NRA correctly, you know what I mean? But but like adding police and, you know, okay. and that and doesn't act, is very unwilling to make the connections because these mayors like Bloomberg have police forces out in every city stopping and frisking uh, people of color and doing the kind of criminalization that folks like Edna Chavez and Trayvon Bosley are saying is completely part of the same experience of gun violence that young people of color are facing, you know, to them. So, so it's, but so my point being that we're getting that same urgency, but now combined with voices of young radicalizing people saying it's just as urgent to explore those root causes. Whereas I think in the previously, the urgency was used to be like, we can't talk about those bigger issues. That's not practical. We can only talk about, you know what I mean? Like how do we just get, um, get these guns off the street and, and these folks are saying no it's both you know what I mean because right. their lives are their life experiences that you can't actually separate them and that that's what's incredibly encouraging
2: and just for our listeners Danny who may not know uh, mayor Bloomberg was the mayor of New York City for did he get a third term? oh yeah well he
0: bought his way into a third term right. yeah right. Mm-hmm.
2: so he was the mayor of New York City for 12 years and implemented a program of stop and frisk um, that led to massive arrests of Uh, young people and people of color throughout the city that I think was part of the backdrop to the Black Lives Matter movement, certainly in New York City. Um, And
0: just, he did that while being... Even deservedly so, getting a reputation as a leading voice of gun control and getting this reputation as one of the only politicians who wasn't afraid to challenge right. the NRA because he was a billionaire, you know, but, right. but like, so those well, two things of, were.
2: Part of stop and frisk was about getting guns off the street. It that was, was the literally an anti-gun
3: program. Right. 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 <laughs> okay. That targeted just, black and Latino people. Right. disproportionately like what 70 80 90 percent by flooding their
0: communities with cops with guns using the threat of their guns to ho- right. to, to detain people in the name of getting guns. Right. Off the street.
2: Okay. Sorry. Right. I just that reminds me of one of my favorite signs from yesterday, which was or I don't think it was yesterday, but one of my favorite signs was some people say that to stop a bad guy with a gun, you need a good guy with a gun, but that just sounds to me like somebody trying to sell two guns. <laughs>
3: which I thought was There's so right. many good signs.
2: <laughs> incredible. It
3: is almost inconceivable though in the end that you would have um, some of these demands and some of the efforts, the initiatives that have been undertaken by the Parkland students to actually forge direct links to students and, uh, you know, black and Latino students in Chicago or in Baltimore without the way in which black lives matter trailblazed for years, raising the issues of police violence, police brutality, and so on for so that no one anywhere in the world really could be, could deny the kind of prevalence of this in black and Brown communities. um, that really, it's it's like this was this is now the moment where it's possible to see kind of what changes have been wrought by those years of struggle.
2: Well, yeah, that was one of the things that I wanted to talk about because there's been a lot of commentary about this. Um, the new oh, York- can we just
0: introduce Eric by the way because we didn't introduce him in the beginning and he just popped in with that <laughs> incisive comment. Would sure. you mind just explaining to folks sure. who that, Eric that handsome voice was that just came in? <laughs> Eric Ruder oh, is
2: our. Um, producer, and ad hoc, sometimes co-host, who you'll be hearing from, I assume, quite a bit. Um, So that was Eric. One of the things I was going to say is that it's been commented on a lot. Like, the New Yorker did a piece yesterday called The Extraordinary Inclusiveness of the March for Our Lives, Mm -hmm. in which they sound almost, like, surprised. And there's a way in which they approach it as if, like, oh, well, they're just trying to be inclusive. Um, But I think there's something more that's going on here. It's like, there's been... You know, nearly eight years of protest since like Occupy, Madison, the Egyptian revolution, where we've just seen one struggle after another emerge. And I think Black Lives Matter um, being one of the most powerful ones. And it can feel like they're kind of here today, gone tomorrow. And I think a lot of activists feel a sense of frustration or you hear people talk about like, is there protest fatigue, which I think mm-hmm. clearly there's not because there have been more protests in the not last year. Not a lot of year. fatigue yesterday. Yeah. At the, at the <laughs> March that I saw. There's been a lot of protest, but it can feel like are, are our efforts getting us anywhere, right? right? And Do they matter? I think that what we saw yesterday and what we saw in the March 14th walkouts is that Our protests do matter. And what they're doing is people are starting to draw lessons. So our movements are having an impact. Like it becomes almost automatic that the Parkland students would say, yeah, we have to have Edna Chavez up there on the stage. We have to go to Chicago and to Baltimore and make these connections to students who've been facing this. Makes sense that David Hoggs from Parkland calls out the media for not covering the fact or not representing the reality that their high school is 25% African-American. Mm-hmm. Would you have known that? I,
3: li- I would have, Yeah, until right. I saw that, I had yeah. no idea. I Even was, the photos kind of never really show that. It's pretty striking. No, right. it's
2: a, it's a straight-up whitewashing yeah. about the reality yeah. of what exists there. And it's an attempt for the media to curate sort of one image of what this movement is. But the students are pushing back, and they're saying, no, this is— who we are. And we don't, we don't share that. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's an important thing to understand. And I think it also speaks to the way there's sort of a politics of solidarity being born right now, particularly in the wake of Trump's ascendancy. It actually reminded me, I went back to read the anti-inauguration that happened on the day Trump was inaugurated. And Naomi Klein said something that really stuck with me. She said, By coming after all of us at once, they're actually not going to divide us and have us scrambling. They're going to unite us. And I think from the women's march to the airport protests and now this movement, we're actually really seeing that take off.
0: Well, and it's very striking too when you hear um I mean it was Naomi Wadler's speech where she's she's talking about um I'm privileged to be up here because Mm -hmm. I'm being listened to and she's she's using some of the same you know, the, the same Words and concepts that maybe in years past have been used to talk about how we can never be able to come together, right. but her message is all about right. solidarity. And the, I think the solidarity that, you know, that I saw in Chicago in particular, in Baltimore with, you know, the students of color, this, 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 the solidarity and the and the love they were showing of standing with Parkland completely and saying, it's not just Parkland. You know what right. I mean? With there's issues here and the way that that came through completely as a message of like, we have right. a similar interest, even though... Like we are experiencing things that most of you haven't and that and we're going to fight for that to be uh, recognized. I mean, there's a vibe that is that is that feels new with that that I think is really important to to understand.
2: Um, Yeah. And we were having a discussion right before this. And I think it's a question, um, you know, Black Lives Matters really took, you know, took a hit with the Trump Uh, Mm -hmm. presidency. I mean, he gave a green light to the cops to go after people and you haven't seen the same kind of protests that you did, you know, in the last years. Until Stephon
0: Clark's murder in Sacramento, right. So a black
2: man shot 20 times and murdered in his own backyard with his hands up, Mm -hmm. you know, with a white cell phone Um, and they mute the body camera after a few minutes because they realize that, you know, this is going to be an issue and they have these protests and it's being followed and I, I think there's a question about can the can this be a next stage in some ways of the Black Lives Matter movement? Or can some of those demands be brought into this discussion of gun violence in a way that will strengthen both movements? Um,
0: So let me let me bring up another point, because I know we're we're probably going to finish up in a couple minutes here, which is the challenges still that that are being faced. Because I think we saw a glimpse of the potential at this march yesterday. But, you know, it's interesting in The New York Times that are, you know, their roundup of the protests, which is really informative and interesting. But they quote Edna Chavez as well. And they quote the very powerful part of her speech where she's saying, Can people call you know, call out my brother Ricardo's name? And it was, you can't not have tears when you're watching that. But they don't mention at all what she says about the police and schools criminalizing people. Right. And they basically didn't mention, you know, any of her more radical left-wing demands. On its own, I'm not gonna call out the New York Times for that one thing, but it's <laughs> telling, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the, the journalistic choice to not do that is you know, so that that is not going to make it into actually most of the mainstream reporting mm-hmm. about this movement and that fa- so and and there's a reason for that because as we were talking about before, there's actually contradictory politics. and we even saw it with um at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I know Jen, Stone you man? sent me this Stoneman, yeah. I
2: thought you said Stillman
0: Stoneman. <laughs> Jen, you talk- sent me this article no. where the stu- the students from the newspaper at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School put out a you know a list of demands, some of which were, were great, but also included, we need more funding for school security in our schools. Right. Even though, you know, David Hogg, one another student at that school has said, we don't need, I don't want to see more cops in our schools. That's a school to prison pipeline. That's fine. It's, it's a, there are people in movements that are broad should have different opinions, but it means that folks that are drawing the more left wing conclusions that we have to connect this up to the roots. As this goes on, I think are gonna find that they have, that the need to actually organize Within the movement, you know, caucuses or organizations or platforms and things like that, because if we don't and if they don't, I think they'll find those those comments getting edited out of the movement in the ways, particularly as we get to the midterm elections, which is something we should talk about as well. You know, in the same way that The New York Times edited those comments out um, from Edna Chavez.
3: There are there are contending political forces. Like like it's not just that, that ideas um, are within individual people or within groups of students like kind of contradictory and so forth. But like, you know, as much as we've just been talking about Black Lives Matter and the way in which the struggles of these recent years have shaped, you know, and made possible this moment of, of forging solidarity between Parkland and Chicago, for example, there's also Democratic Party operatives. Interests that are at stake here, because they understand how you could harness this to an electoral, you know, um, uh, thrust against Trump and Trumpism, and they are they they want to put that kind of a stamp on it. Whereas, you know, like what we're talking about is how do we forge these connections and put a stamp on it, which the Democratic Party really isn't seeing as sort of in their wheelhouse of what they want to highlight and so forth. And so, I think they played a pretty savvy role over the course of the weekend because most places. It seemed like it was really about highlighting and pushing these young people, these students forward as it should have been. Um, but I, I, you have to think because they understand the power that also lies within this, as far as what their own electoral game is, um, that they are also thinking about how to kind of shape it and, and put their own stamp on it. And I think, um, you know, like activists on the left have to do that same thing. Otherwise we just leave the field to them to actually, you know, do that unopposed.
2: Well, and also what we've seen, I mean, it's an active question because since Columbine, we've actually seen an escalation of what activists call the school to prison pipeline, right? Mm There have been 30,000 police officers have been added to schools since 1999, since that shooting. And that hasn't made our schools safer. It hasn't stopped the, you know, mass shootings that have taken place. Those have only increased. Um, but what it has done is arrested a million high school students over minor petty offenses, the vast majority of them probably students of color. And Jillian Russum, who's a school teacher in LA, makes this point in an article in Socialist Worker that actually The criminalizing and alienating impact of searches can actually reduce the bonds of trust that students have with adults and make them less likely to help or report signs of danger, right? So there's, there's two visions being put forward here. One is a vision of like arming our teachers, militarizing our schools, adding school safety agents. And then there's another vision that's about broadening and opening up that debate, right? That's really what we're talking about here.
0: Well, there is so much more to be said. I'm itching to say it, but we should really bring in our interview with Kianga to get to it. One thing I'll just say is that um, on our website, there will be show notes. We were were referring to a lot of different things and people should really check that out to get resources for more information on what we were talking about.
2: Absolutely. And before we end, we were talking about the media manipulation of the stories. And I think one example of that that we don't have time to talk about today, but I just want to highlight is the way in which the, you know, black victims of the Austin package bomber, their lives were barely talked about for a whole week um, while this story was unfolding. And we thought it would be nice to just end with a tribute to Draylin Mason, who was the um, 17-year-old who um, was a very gifted musician who was murdered and who into Oberlin's very competitive conservatory program would have found this out this week but never got an opportunity to Um, we found a beautiful uh, performance by him of the Von Hall Concerto Movement 1 and we just wanted to end with a little clip from that
0: I'm going to turn to our interview with Kianga Mata taylor author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation and How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. has become one of the leading lights and authors and activists in the fight around black liberation. I think you're going to really enjoy this interview. Just as a reminder, we did record this the day before the student walkouts on March
3: 14th.
2: We have a bunch we want to talk about today. We thought we would start, you just, I literally walked in the door and saw your Facebook um, post saying... Public schools, a site of race and class struggle, talking about how Trump wants to blame the mass shootings um, taking place in largely white suburban schools uh, on Obama-era policies that would reduce expulsions and suspensions of students of color, um, typically taking an issue and trying to turn it for his own racist ends. So we thought we wanted to start with, you know, tomorrow there's going to be a national day of walkouts all across the country um, around gun violence which seems to have really, you know, it's gone, it's gone big, it's gone mainstream. My kids' school, the pre-K students through the fifth grade students are walking out um, of the school along with the middle schoolers and high schoolers. Um, So I wanted to get some of your thoughts
1: on that. I I think a few things. One, I think it shows mobilizations and uh, protests can help transform an issue. So I think that's actually an important, uh, that's an important point because, you know, gun control or gun reform laws have been, um, almost, uh, unapproachable, uh, for, for so long, um, that you, you know, you have incidents of shooting, um, that circulate through a news cycle and then, uh, it very quickly, uh, disappears. But the, Mobilizations of um, these high school students uh, have helped to make um, this an issue that is impossible uh, to disappear. So that even in Florida, um, which is kind of ground zero for uh, the deference of elected officials to the NRA, uh, that they even had to make some concessions um, uh, to the students, although not nearly. Uh, what was uh, being demanded but the the fact that they actually had to uh concede uh says something about the the power of protest that um i just think is very important to uh to to recognize especially at a time when um you know it can, it can be easy for people to be cynical uh about uh, protest after last year when there were um, significant uh, demonstrations over the course of the year that seemed to have little impact on uh, what the Bush, what, the Bush. <laughs> I feel on, yeah.
0: Understandable.
1: <laughs> what the Trump administration did at any given time. But, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, this is, is, is one uh, way to, um, to really assert the the power of uh, protests and and political mobilizations in the um, in the streets, uh, I'm interested to see uh, where this goes. I think that um, you know the media, as they as they tend to do, have uh, uh, tried to contain and this this issue and uh, narrow it down to its most visible representatives, but Um, I know in Philly, uh, in the, you know, 90 percent black public schools, that uh, there are are many walkouts that have been organized um, uh, at uh, college campuses um, around the country. uh, There are uh, walkouts um, that have been organized. At Princeton, um, a walkout is scheduled uh, for tomorrow. So I'm interested to see... um, what this turns into, how it develops, and uh, really what the the political trajectory of it is, I think thus far, um, the the demands have been uh, pretty broad uh, and for you know and for many people, uh, unobjectionable. Um, but I think that the longer that this goes and that more questions arise about the, the nature and origins of violence in uh, public schools in American society, uh, that the more issues are are opened up. Um, uh, and that raises the, the possibility of uh, an even broader discussion um, about where these problems with, with violence, with gun violence, uh, actually come from. So in some ways, you know, I think it's a it's a exciting political uh, development, and, you know, we'll see where it goes.
2: So what do you think those broader questions are about gun violence and where it comes from? Like, what are some things you would say about that?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's very uh, easy, as most of these officials try to do, uh, to either on the right say that it's the crazy uh shooter, it's the crazy gunman, Uh or among liberals and Democrats, it's just to say that um, it's just access to guns. And so, you know, I think that the gun access thing is an important one. I don't think it's enough to just say that uh, it's mental health or it's, it's, you know, amorphous violence. I think that there's something to say about a society that has more guns than people and (laughs) You know, guns are so readily available that uh, allow people to, you know, sort of act out uh, whatever uh, the trigger is in a in a very specific way that just doesn't happen in any other society on earth. So I think that that is is one thing, but I do think that you know it matters that the United States has been in a state of fucking war since you know 2001. Um, and before that, it was in a state of preparing for war uh, uh, constantly. I think the normalization of uh, the security state, of the expansion of policing powers, of uh, the, the uh, uh, default response to every uh, kind of uh, international uh, tension that exists within this country is the threat of some kind of military reprisal. Um, communicate something uh, very specific in terms of uh, how these issues are um, how issues are are resolved in this uh, society, and so uh, it's it's very kind of um, uh, it can give one whiplash to hear the way that uh, politicians uh, reference um, you know that we should be peaceful and learn how to resolve uh, conflict, and we need mental health care, and we need all of these sorts of services to uh, respond to violence within um, this country, which is always kind of a response after uh, a mass shooting situation. Um, But the minute that you step outside of the bounds uh, uh, here, uh, the... The instinct, the impulse, is always towards uh, war, destruction, and utter annihilation. Well, in um, fact,
2: yeah. And Nicholas Cruz was in a Jay Ratzi program where right. he was being trained as a sharpshooter on
1: right. in school. I mean, it's just well, crazy. That, that's one of the. I mean, that's one of the um, the questions to see as to whether or not that will actually uh, develop into something. Because it's one thing to say, "Oh, we should." raise the the age uh, by which people can have access to guns, even though the average age of mass shooters is something like 34. Um, But, okay, we can raise the age, but does it really address uh, issues like having more police um, in the school? Does it address issues like military recruitment Mm -hmm. in schools and in some places? Um uh where you actually have, you know, I mean, I've never heard of a program teaching students how to shoot <laughs> military on campus. It, that's something that uh is is another kind of example of uh the complete deference of apparently all public officials um in from schools to uh, the state house in the state of Florida.
0: I, I gotta be honest, I mean I think there's real because of the galvanizing effect over the last few years of the movement for black lives, even if we don't see the size of those protests. I think there's real, you know, we've seen momentum in schools pushing back against police, you know, the police presence in schools, even though that's, you know, that that's a movement that's just starting. But when you talk about taking on militarization and the ROTC stuff, we have lost so much ground, you know, even in the, even when you, you know, it was apparent in the NFL protests, right, where Mm -hmm. football players who are, you know, standing up. For Black Lives Matter, standing up against police brutality, but felt very unconfident. Understandably so when their protests were getting cynically linked to attacks on the military, as if there shouldn't be protests against the military that's been at war for the entire lives of high school students today um, and cause all this destruction. So I, I think I think it's going to. Um, I, I just I think that it's so. That's all the more reason why it's so important for people to start raising it. But the. You know, I I find it personally very frightening the way, you know, how how quickly the the window is closed on anybody but radicals feeling, you know, comfortable to even question anything about uh, the military.
1: Yeah, there's a a weird uh, deification of the military in um, U.S. society in general. It's as if, you know, it's this entity that um, no one can... uh, you know, uh, criticize or or even question, um, and you know I think that uh, people view um, uh, people in the military as uh, having made the choice uh, to sacrifice. You know, for our rights and freedom. Although it's always like, you know, are our rights and freedom located in Afghanistan? Are they located in? Uh, Pakistan you know, why are we over there? Um, so I do think that that, um, yeah, it's very difficult uh, to um, uh, to address. And it has been uh, something that, you know, no one has really made uh, a connection between um, with Nicholas Cruz and uh, the military training. You know, in a similar way, no one has really made much of the fact Um, that he was a raving racist, uh, either, or that he was decked out Mm -hmm. in, you know, (laughs) um, uh, Trump gear, uh, and while, you know, having these kinds of uh, toxic, racist um, ideas. And so I just think that some of these things become uh, unavoidable uh, the longer that this remains a political issue, because I think within any movement type of situation, um, the more people that get involved, uh, the more that these people uh, remain active, um, then you very quickly get beyond the kind of um, easy questions that everyone uh, agrees upon. Um, and, you know, the more, the longer that this is an issue, uh, the, the more uh, some of the, the broader questions about, Um, the militarism in American society uh, begin to emerge as perhaps part of the issue um, with uh, the the perpetual uh, problem of violence in our society.
2: Yeah. It also seems like there is going to be a real struggle over questions like these discipline policies. This has been a big issue in New York City where de Blasio also has called for cutting back on the number of expenses suspensions and expulsions uh they're they're gonna try to push back use this moment to push back on some of those things but the students i think are making the connections like here in new york city a lot of the schools walking out i know one school just had a 500 person walkout against metal detectors but they're going to be sitting in tomorrow um against gun violence and they don't see those things as counterposed
1: i mean i think there's a similar dynamic that is happens with uh Black and brown neighborhoods, which is um, for administrators and elected officials, they don't have any other alternative. They're not going to spend more money. Right. They're not going to do any investment. So they double down on uh, security, policing, and control as a response to uh, whatever issue there is um, in a school, whether it's an academic issue. Whether it's you know an issue with violence, whatever the issue is, is to double down um, on disciplined policing, uh, control, and so uh, it's the same thing, you know, in the neighborhoods that these students uh, come from, which is we're not going to invest, we're not going to expand uh, or create any social programs, we're not going to uh, uh, create. Um, any meaningful jobs? What we're going to do is turn to policing, policing, um, punishment, and more policing. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that that is the response that they have, and it puts people in a situation um, where, you know, one of the reactions is uh, to actually protest against that. And I think that uh, for a lot of these students who have come of age um, in the in the era. Uh, of Black lives matter um, that in in many instances I, I think that they have come uh, to expect more um, than just to be uh, sort of confronted with um, more security um, I think that the the rise of the kind of uh, know your rights that has been a part of, of this, Um, You know, it just creates the conditions for conflict uh, between uh, students who are subjected to these kinds of policies um, and the administrators and and public officials who pursue them. And so that's sort of what I meant with the the post, is that I think that um, for public schools, that uh, I expect there to be quite a bit of conflict over Um, not just the issues of security, but really uh, what is what is happening with with public education and uh, the issues of how teachers are treated, the issues of funding um, and these issues of of security.
0: Well, that seems to be a logical point to jump to the other huge source of struggle happening in schools right now, which is the the education workers strike that took place in West Virginia, I'm not calling it a teacher strike anymore because I've been schooled on the fact that it was also mm-hmm. bus drivers, caf- you know, uh, cafeteria workers uh, and others, and now the the real possibility of that of that strike happening in Oklahoma. It, it seems that it, it's, cl- it's clear on both these issues, the walkouts and these strikes, that the, the volatility and polarization in Trump's America of this relentlessly right-wing administration and Betsy DeVos, you know, running up against the growing frustration of students and teachers in very different places just produces all sorts of results and West Virginia famously infamously whatever I no state went for Trump in greater proportion um two years ago it was the site of more articles than I can even remember of sort of New York Times anthropologists going down to interview these strange (laughs) white working class people who don't seem to understand their own interest you know all, all those kind of a couple of them would be good but you know most of them had that had that had that um you know, uh, anthropologist tone or whatever. And now we see this, this strike. So I'm, 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 what, what's been your uh, reaction to, to what's uh, this, these incredible things that have unfolded over the last month?
1: Well, I think with, that's always interesting, like, you know, um, Trump and, and, and West Virginia, uh, because on the one hand, you, you can say that um Uh, no other state, uh, had the kind of level of, um, support for Trump. And then you could also say, um, maybe that's a question, uh, but, you know, no other state has also had the kind of reign of tyranny from the democratic party, um, uh, over, you know, 92 years. Yeah. Over the last, (laughs) maybe
0: they just needed more time to turn it around.
1: And so, um, you know, I've I've been giving a a talk about um, uh, from Black Lives Matter to the White Power Presidency, and you know, part of that is trying to think about the dynamic of what happens when you have a president, um, Barack Obama, who for eight, you know, for going into his first term. Uh, promises to change everything and changes very little and then you have a candidate from the Democratic Party uh, who then promises you nothing at all um, and and what kind of uh, alternative uh, that creates for people and that's not sorry kianga
0: to be fair Hillary Clinton did promise in West Virginia that a lot of coal miners would lose their job so I think you're being unfair
1: a lot of work right. <laughs> Yeah, I, fr- I forgot about that. Um, and so that's not to dismiss uh, the, um, you know, the fact that uh, many people probably did vote for Trump uh, uh, for racist reasons. It's to try to understand um, the, the the context uh, for that, and and really to raise the the question as to whether or not there are any circumstances uh, under which. Uh, people's ideas can can, tra- can change and transform. I think that uh, Trump very cynically um, and purposefully uh, used uh, racism and racial resentment, whether it's the Mexicans, Muslims, and Blacks, uh, to uh, as, as the barometers to shape his um, political campaign. Um, and I think in the absence of uh, uh, of a real alternative to that, you know, people uh, people go for that as they have done throughout American history. Not everyone, but significant numbers of people. But I think that it doesn't change the politically volatile nature. Uh, of all of American politics, because the problem is that, you know, Trump can promise to bring the coal jobs back, and he can promise to transform uh, the economy, and he can promise to um, make America great again, according to him. But what happens when it doesn't happen? What happens when that doesn't actually materialize, that the jobs don't come back, uh, or that whatever jobs are created aren't enough to actually address the real material constraints that define uh, people's lives um, and that you know is part of what uh, is happening that's part of the the dynamic that uh, creates the conditions for uh, the the teacher strike in in West Virginia um, is you have you know people whose wages are either stagnant or falling while they're being asked to bear a greater burden, uh, uh in health care costs and at the same time you have billionaire uh, uh billion dollar industries energy yep. industries coal and oil in the state who it's like they're untouchable you cannot take their money it's right. not right.
0: actually a poor state it's just the people that are poor
1: right exactly and so and, and this is everywhere you in in chicago boeing the multi-billion dollar maker of planes, his headquartered in Chicago, and they don't pay any taxes. It's astounding. While the city government closes schools, they closed, you know, 52 schools in 2012. They closed another four schools in the uh, neighborhood of Englewood that has the highest concentration of shootings in the city of Chicago. Right. They closed the four high schools in the neighborhood. Because they, you know, they're running a deficit, but they won't tax Boeing. And so this is a dynamic that exists um, all over the country. And what uh, the, the West Virginia strike shows is that, at the end of the day, the you know, people who work um, have the greatest ability to transform this situation. Um, And so, I mean, there are many things to say about why uh, the strike in in West Virginia is so um, important, whether the fact that it's illegal, it was illegal, um, and why that matters, uh, because often, uh, especially within the labor movement, uh, the trade union leadership has used the the issue of legality uh, as a constraint on itself as to whether or not it will actually act in uh, the face of, um, you know, I think what one may refer to as generational attacks um, on the working class. Uh, and I think that the issue of solidarity, you know, which let's talk about uh, all the time, you can see why it matters uh, because it'd be very easy, it had been very easy for uh, the teachers in West Virginia. Uh, when they were first promised a 5% uh, pay increase by the governor of the state to just go back to work um, and, you know, other state workers be damned that this was a teacher strike, we went out, we got the teacher's raise, and now we're going back. Um, but there is, you know, an understanding that <clears throat> if uh, creating the tears within uh, state worker's um, uh, uh, creates a lot of of of, of tension, and um, that you know the the most effective way uh, to ensure um, uh, the the to ensure that everyone got not even their fair share, but got what it was that they were asking for. Well, used uh, yeah. to go back. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's also that the teachers saw themselves as fighting, I mean, for their whole communities. We had an event here in New York City where three of the teachers came up to speak. And, you know, we were talking about coal country and Trump and the hopes in Trump. And I have to say that for myself, like, I tend to think of the Trump vote as much, as very much like despair, desperation, anti-establishment, racism, big, you know, all of that stuff, and I have tended not to think about, like, the actual promises. and But when Katie from Mingo, which is coal country, talked about how Trump promised to bring back coal and people really believed it was going to happen. And she talked about, like, their community, like, literally in the space of 10 years, kids who had been, like, you know, well-to-do in their context, like, The younger siblings coming up, they have to open their locker rooms early so that kids can shower because they've had their water cut off. She talked about how they pass the hat regularly to pay off $700 power bills because they're going to get their electricity cut off. Like the abject poverty that people are living in going from a $100,000 a year job to living on unemployment. And there's no there's like literally no jobs like it just it's one thing to hear about that like. At a distance, it's another thing to see that kind of up close. And one of the things she said was that, yeah, people are seeing that coal's not coming back. Like Trump's been in office for over a year. They're losing hope. And she had this great line where she said, now we're starting to put our hope in each other. And she was never a Trump supporter. She was like in the minority. She was one of 10 people in her school who didn't vote for Trump. But she said that since the strike... She's been getting emails and calls and texts from people saying they're switching their affiliation. They're either going independent or Democrat. They're done with Trump. Like one guy got interviewed and she was so she was like, the Times wouldn't publish this. But he said, where is that bastard Trump? That bastard. West Virginia is known for voting for him. And where is he now? He doesn't give a damn about us. And she's like, they'll never put that. In That's the New so York interesting because
0: I was wondering, I've been looking for reactions for people in the news about why Trump wasn't there, and now I know that the news didn't publish right. the reactions.
1: <laughs> well, I think the 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 thing about um, people having an idea that they're fighting uh, for each other is is important, um, especially in light of. I know there was some concern when the strike was first settled that. Um, Uh, that the Republicans were basically going to gut Medicaid um, in order to pay for uh, the raises. Um, And then, you know, you you see that 30% of uh, people in West Virginia are are Medicaid uh, recipients. And uh, it's just clear that these are issues that uh, affect everyone um, and that it means that um, you have to... It it forces you in some ways to have uh, an idea of how the, the the dots are connected, and so I think that those are you know those are important lessons to um, to bring out of the strike. And these are you know these are the issues that uh, are confronting um, uh, teachers and, and poor and working class communities uh, across the the country. And I think the you know the the West Virginia strike shows a particular uh, way um, to respond to this that is is more effective, to be honest, than um, a lot of the 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 protests and other demonstrations uh, that we've seen. It's not to 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 denigrate those those have an important role to play but when we talk about the the power of the working class um, right. this is this is why because mm-hmm. uh, when you start uh, affecting the bottom line and the actual functioning um, of a given uh, community in this case of the state um, then uh, it 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 shows a certain power that uh, the working class still has um, that no other group uh, possesses. So we can have very successful walkouts uh, tomorrow. And, you know, we all hope that they are are enormous and that they continue to bring attention uh, to this, incredible, you know, this very important issue uh, of, of gun violence in this country. Um, but no walkout, no matter how big it is, Um, will have the same impact uh, that the mobilization uh, of teachers and other professionals um, in uh, uh, a school environment have by refusing to work. Um, And so, you know, when people ask about why uh, socialists care about uh, the working class and talk about the working class, um, you know, it's not because we think workers are are, you know, more special people or better people or anything like that. It's about uh, the social power that they have to uh, completely shut things down uh, as a way to um, leverage uh, the demands to get what we want from uh, the employer class.
0: Just just to tie this in a little bit to the, the discussion about the shootings, though, I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons why you're but especially from Black liberation to from from Black Lives Matter to Black liberation, I think, have struck such a chord with people is that you are probably and I'm just gonna kiss your ass for a second. You're you're one of the leading writers and voices that that has sort of a dynamic view of the way race and class and gender all inter- intersect with each other, and that it's not you know while well, you have to look at these categories on their own in real life, they don't function like that in terms of what you were just saying about the unique power of the working class, it's also true in West Virginia that those workers, in turn, were empowered by the incredible support they had from their communities, you know, to the point that superintendents felt pressure that they had to close the schools. And the teachers themselves worked to build that. I'm raising this point because in plenty of, in a a city like Chicago, where you have the Chicago Teachers Union being, you know, which up until now had been sort of, you know, carried the the struggle forward the most— they had to take on issues of racism, police brutality, mm-hmm. apartheid schooling in order to actually play that leading role so that they had similar levels of support. And I mentioned this because I think there's going to be a temptation in some circles to draw a conclusion from West Virginia. Like this just shows it's all about the bread and butter, economic issues, pay, health care. Actually, in West Virginia, it goes deeper than that. It's about the opioid crisis. It's about, it is about the social crisis as well. But I think that would really be. A wrong conclusion. One, I, I like I just said, I don't think that's the case in West Virginia. But we're also saying Trump is going to try to, to drive a racist wedge in teachers right now. He's going, he's making an argument that for teachers and, and students to be safe in schools, schools have to ramp up their disciplinary, you know, measures, suspend kids that have been shown to have way disproportionate impact on students of color. You know what I mean? And, and that's not an issue that teachers can, teachers unions can avoid because it's not an economic issue that's going to unite the whole membership. So anyways, I'm just, I'm throwing out my opinion about that, but I'm curious, um, you know, your take,
2: but don't disagree with Danny.
1: What on earth would, would, would I have to disagree with? <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think that that is, um, an important point and it, you know, in some ways it reflects the the demographic of uh, a particular location, but in, um, when this struggle manifests itself in the big cities uh, across the country, and every big city is embroiled in some kind of public school mm-hmm. uh, crisis because of the the dearth of funding um, that you know the 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 lack of funding and also the uh, mandate of this administration, uh, which is to break uh, uh, public school uh, teacher unions, mm-hmm. uh, is to really, uh, break public schools and to siphon um, uh, public funding away from public schools to to private schools to charter schools, um, uh, and so it means that you know there there is no big city district in the country that isn't facing. Um, either in the midst of a a crisis uh, surrounding these issues or um, on the verge of a crisis. And so in those places, uh, the issues of race and class are absolutely unavoidable. Um, In most of these places, you're talking about uh, a black and brown majority um, uh, school population. Uh, And in order, I mean, the the genius of the Chicago strike uh, in 2012 uh, was their ability to um, win the support um, of the 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 parents in right. the broader uh, communities that these students came from? The mayor Rahm Emanuel, uh, the the Chicago School Board bent over backwards to try to uh, make the you know strikers, the teachers, out to be greedy and out for themselves, and you know there's. Endless news reporting about the inconvenience of, uh, of the strike um, itself. And, you know, for many of these parents, it's kind of like, well, you know what's inconvenient is <laughs> closing our public schools. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. It's inconvenient, um, the, the fact that teachers have to have uh, 40 children um, in a classroom uh, and on and on and on, you know, with the, the, the problems in the uh, Chicago public schools. And so um, the ability to uh, describe the attacks on public education in Chicago as racist and actually naming what the problem was in a time where, you know, everyone will call, will describe uh, uh, a problem as anything but racist because you can't actually you know, talk about things being racist, because if you do, then you're the a one racist. who's, you know, and so they rejected that and actually put racism and what they referred to as apartheid schools uh, at the center of the campaign in a way that actually resonated and made sense uh, to not just the parents, but to any thinking person in the city of Chicago who could look at the downtown area, and see growth and development and never-ending sources of investment, and then look in the neighborhoods uh, that are disproportionately black and brown uh, and see disinvestment and uh, 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 complete ignoring um, of the social conditions in those communities. And so uh, the language of a race, of racism and apartheid made uh, a total sense. And by um Joining those two things together, the social crisis in the neighborhoods that is prompted by uh, the lack of investment, um, by really the inattention um, from the administration to the conditions of the school, uh, what in in some ways, you know, is is a part of this uh, dynamic of social justice Uh, unionism, uh, of not having this wall between uh, what happens in uh, a given area and the workplaces that are located there, or the the people who work there who experience um, uh, those issues on a day-to-day basis, uh, help to make, extend uh, the issue beyond the school into a a community issue, um, but that was still situated. Uh, in that could still be resolved through the activity uh, of the teachers, through the teachers' refusal uh, to participate um, uh, uh, in that situation and to withhold their labor. So, you know, I think that the, the, the Chicago strike still remains critically important for demonstrating um, how you make that connection uh, uh, to a neighborhood or to a community. Um, and I think for the biggest school districts uh, in the country, um, that remains like a very important part um, of the of the of the model because you know those school districts are predominantly um, black and brown. The West Virginia thing is of critical importance too because of the fact that it was in it, it was a, a, a an illegal strike. And that's not to fetishize, you know, illegality. But when the first weapon that elected officials always want to pull out is the injunction, right? Mm-hmm. That you can't do this because it's too disruptive uh, to, you know, the uh, it's too disruptive to the public. And through solidarity and having 55 counties out at the same time um, and being able to hold that, they were able to even forestall uh, any public official coming out with that threat in a serious way, um, and so that also remains uh, is an important thing to to take from that. So I think that we have to think dynamically uh, about instead of this one is more important than that one, and you know we have to see what can we continue to learn from both struggles that will inform. Uh, the movement going forward
2: yeah and it seems like Oklahoma is going to have all those things
1: yeah no exactly
2: <laughs> I mean that's There's... a struggle against charter schools you don't think of Oklahoma but like it's the large you know these large black school districts in Tulsa yeah. that are being destroyed by charter schools and they're going to be going up against the state and they're talking about state workers going out alongside the teachers which could be 150,000 workers yep.
0: Right, we can't rank West Virginia or Chicago, but we can't. Oklahoma is going to be the most important, <laughs> I think. It's what Kian a- is saying. <laughs> well, I think that's what I'm saying.
2: Oh, what well, Jen's yeah. saying. Sorry. Uh-huh. All nah, right. Nah, well, we actually this
0: is this has been incredible, but we're, we are. Um, Eric is forcing us to stop. This is sort of his okay. role as the person we <laughs> get to blame. Um, <laughs> this has been great. No, thank thanks so much for for being here.
1: No, thank you, and let me know um, if you have ideas about. Um, other folks that I might know and can help put you in touch. Soon. That would be great. Um, all of them? I think that was my first. Okay, no,
0: we, we will. I don't
1: know who they are, but yeah. Right. <laughs> all right, guys. All right, thanks, cool. Kanga. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you.
2: All right. Thank you so much for listening to our launch episode of Better Off Red. If you liked what you heard, we'd really appreciate it if you could go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Subscribe to us if you like what you heard. Um, It really makes a difference in getting it out there, especially, just so you know, uh, radicals listening to us, the iTunes platform uh, does really make a difference. So if you can head over there, even if you've downloaded on a different platform that would be really helpful. We also- Get m- off
0: your high horses and get over to iTunes. <laughs>
2: <No>. <laughs> we- are you,
3: are you an Apple <laughs> ad man or <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, We really do want your feedback and have a number of ways you can provide that. You can check us out at our Facebook page, Better Off Red Podcast, or you can email us at betteroffredpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you about your thoughts about the show, future guests you'd like to hear, features and segments you'd like to see, um, or just general kudos or things you think we could improve. This is going to be a collective work in process because that's the kind of socialists we are. Thanks for listening.